member of Valinon, my name is Aaron Jacks. I am really grateful to be here. I want to thank Jessica and the rest of the committee for inviting me here and Kevin for dropping me all the way from the airport and, and graciously volunteering to take care of that, that basket to save me from myself. And um, I'm just really, really grateful to be here. Um, thank you, Mary, for, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope there, and I could relate to all of that. Um, well, what I've been asked to, to do here tonight is tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, and try to emphasize that I, because that's that's what my story needs to be about as much as possible. Um, it's true that I qualify for this. It's easy to qualify for Al-Anon. My life has been affected by alcoholism and relatives and friends. But it's equally true that I wasn't going through my life acting and thinking like a an emotionally and mentally healthy person, and then I met an alcoholic and went crazy. I think that that can happen. It's just not my story. The defects of character that made my life completely unmanageable and still can today, the overblown sense of responsibility for everyone and everything, uh, the, the rage and the resentment, um, the self-centered fear. Uh, I don't remember a time that my life wasn't ruled by those things. And so I always try to remember to start out by saying that I needed a meeting long before I picked up my first drunk. I am... <laughs> I'm here because there's something wrong with me, like you said, Mary, and, uh, and so I'm going to try to keep that focus on me as much as possible. This is about my, my recovery, but I do need to tell you about some of the alcoholics in my life that led me to, to Al-Anon and, and to whom I will be forever grateful for leading me to find this program of recovery that I so desperately needed and still need today. I forgot to tell you, um, my home group uh, is the One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. We meet on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. We study a step each night in a tradition on the last Thursday of the month. I absolutely love my home group. I hope you feel the same way about yours. And if you're ever in the area, uh, we've still got a landline. So I'm in the phone book. Please look me up. Uh, and I'd love to take you to a good meeting. All right, so I'm a little lightheaded. I don't know if it's the, uh, the elevation or uh, the, it's 10 o'clock in my brain uh, or what it is, but I uh, hope, hope some of this makes some sense. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, into a very loving family. There was no alcoholic drinking uh, in my family growing up. Um, my mom is the single most loving, giving person I've ever met in my life. Uh, but with that love, there came a seemingly an equal amount of fear. And the fear and the love were always intermingled. It was like, if you loved someone, you were afraid for them all the time. And in fact, that's kind of how you knew how much you loved them, was how afraid for them you were, for their safety and their health. And, um, and I, I, from a very early age, I remember not understanding why mom was so fearful for us. We, I was very sheltered, it was a very religious, home and I've got absolutely nothing against religion but it did not work for me at the time I mean it was it was some some weird stuff I remember I got grounded once because they caught me listening to the radio that sort of strange stuff very very sheltered very fear-based um, trying to protect us from from the outside world and uh, and I was an absolutely miserable miserable kid uh, I was the first of five kids painfully self-conscious uh, in Al-Anon, I learned what those, what the actual words mean, self-conscious. It means I'm conscious of me. I'm thinking about me all of the time. And I'm wondering what you're thinking about me all of the time. When, of course, you're very, very rarely thinking about me, but I think you're thinking about me as often as I'm thinking about me, 
which is all the time, and you're not thinking anything good because I'm not thinking anything good. And that's all I thought about. Just a miserable, miserable kid. And, um, I, you know, like I said, there were five of us kids. But the other thing I remember about growing up that seemed strange to me, and it was even a family joke, is that mom needs to save the world. And so in addition to the five of us siblings, there was a, a stream of foster brothers uh, who were living at the house for some time. And, um, you know, all of these kids came from alcoholic uh, uh, situations, and they needed the kind of unconditional love that my mom was willing to give them, and my dad too. But being selfish and self-centered from a very early age, what I saw was that these strangers are getting all of my mom's attention and all of her love. And, uh, and I felt somehow that I had to perform. I had to be perfect to get loved on my terms. And I don't have any idea where I got that idea. It didn't come from my parents. I made that up in my head. But uh, also, there was always some stranger in the guest bedroom that, that mom was taking care of and ministering to. And every holiday, we'd have you know, homeless people at the table that, that mom was taking care of. And these are not bad things. These are good things. But again, I, I was very selfish, very self-centered. I wanted to focus on me. I wanted to be loved on my terms, which were not reasonable. And so I didn't understand why mom had this need uh, to save the world. And uh, I would have told you, and I did tell you when I came into Al-Anon, that that had nothing to do with alcoholism because my parents aren't big drinkers. Uh, the only big drinker I knew growing up was my mom's mom. And I, I was convinced that that you know, had nothing to do with anything, but learning a little bit about the family disease of alcoholism and how it affects everybody. I, I think I have a little better understanding today about why my mom was the way she was and where she got some of her ideas about what it means to love and to take care of people. And that's not about blaming anyone. It's just about understanding how this family disease affects us and what I can do about it today because I'm responsible for that today. And that was the fun grandma growing up. You know, she wasn't the one that, that made me sit quietly and you know, go to church with her. She was the one that would give me the first sip of every beer I'd bring her from the fridge and, um, you know, would act inappropriately in public, which is a lot of fun when you're a young kid. Um, and so I didn't see any problem with Grandma and her drinking growing up. You know, looking back on it, like I said, I think I have a little better understanding of what it was like for my mom as the oldest child of a problem drinker, who I try not to call an alcoholic because she does not identify herself that way today. But... Growing up as the oldest child of a problem drinker who was hospitalized for her drinking back in the 50s, um, I love my mom. My mom's not in recovery. She knows what Al-Anon has done for me, and she knows the door is wide open, and I leave it at that. Maybe one day she'll come with me. But uh, anyway, getting back to growing up, I was just a miserable kid, and um, oh, uh, I, was, I went to a, a church, a, a school that was part of that church. It was a very, very small private school, and I hated everyone in authority. I had to be perfect, so I had to make straight A's, and I did. I, in fact, I skipped second grade, but I, I really think that was because the second grade teacher couldn't stand me more than anything else. But I had to be perfect. I had to make straight A's, but I fought with everyone constantly. And uh, so despite my, my great grades, I, halfway through eighth grade, I was kicked out of that school for nothing in particular except they just got tired of me. I never really did one thing. They just got tired of the, um, me. And so uh, then I was homeschooled for a year and a half, which was really a miserable experience for everyone involved in that. And then for the last three years of uh, high school, 10, 11, 12, I went off to another very small uh, private religious school. And I was terrified 
of everyone and everything. I had absolutely no social skills. I couldn't talk to anyone, miserable in my own skin. Um, and I, I didn't know, I, I just didn't know how to live. I, I felt like everybody else knew what they were doing, what they were supposed to do, and I, I didn't know. And so uh, halfway through my 10th grade year, I was 15, no, 11th grade year, I was 15 years old, uh, I found my solution. And she came in halfway through the school year. Uh, she was really easy to pick out. She, everybody in the school kind of dressed all alike and wore very nice clothes. It had the same haircut, it seemed like to me, except me. And she was really easy to pick out. She dressed crazy clothes, and she had her hair dyed pink and shaved in a, an upside-down V in the back. And um, she, I know today I could have picked her out blindfolded because I'm really good at finding these people, but nobody knew what to do with her. She had gone from, I think, living with her mom to her dad to some an aunt and uncle, and now I think she was living with some cousins. And I guess they thought this, this private religious school would, would help her, but uh, I found my solution. Um, I don't know if she was looking for someone to save her. Probably not. I know today that I was looking for someone to save. My mom had taught me that to be a good person, you go out and you find people that you think need your help, and you hold them down and help the hell out of them whether they want it or not. And that's how, and you never pay attention to yourself. You don't take care of yourself. You're always helping other people. And that's how you know you're a good person. And I took that and, and ran with it. And boy, she really looked like she needed my help. I had never met anybody like her in my very sheltered uh, existence up until age 15. She was drunk all the time. Uh, she was never where she said she was going to be. She lied about everything for no reason most of the time. And I was in love. And um, it was exhilarating and it was terrifying. Uh, but what it did for me more than anything was I never had to think about myself anymore. And I told you, that's all I had thought about for 15 years. I don't have time to think about me anymore because I am constantly bailing her out and making excuses for her and trying to track her down. And um, I remember so many times holding her hair while she threw up. That filled a need in me that I can't describe. I'm such a good guy. I, what a good guy I am here holding her hair while she's sick again. It's, uh, I look at 15-year-olds today, and I, I just can't imagine being that insane at that age, but I was. And, uh, and we were off and running. So we were together from 15 till we graduated. And like I told you, it was just crazy. Um, and let's see, we graduated the same year. Uh, I was a year ahead. She was a year behind. So she was 19. I was 17. We graduated, and she did the normal thing. She went off to college in Tennessee. I had done very well in school again, always on the verge of getting kicked out for being a jerk, but it made straight A's, and uh, I said, I hate school, I hate authority, I hate everybody, and I really did. I'm moving out. So she went off to college in Tennessee, and I moved out, and I got to choose for the first time who I was going to live with, and who I chose were three other guys. That we were all 16, 17, 18 years old. Someone rented us a house, which is remarkable to me today. Uh, and it was a, it was not a, a bad place. You know, it was a fairly decent place for about a week. Um, two of these guys were well on their way toward probable alcoholism with some other outside issues going on there. I mean, full-blown by the time they were this age. And then the fourth guy was one of these weird normal people. He wasn't one of them, and he wasn't one of me. And it was absolute insanity, as you can imagine, with, with kids this young living in a house and... 
the normal guy lasted a few weeks. He did what any normal person would do in a situation like that. He said, I can't live like this. I have to get up and go to work in the morning. And he moved back in with his mom, like any normal person would do. And I was so angry at him. We're still friends today. How can you abandon me with these irresponsible, drunken idiots and just you know, give up and move back in with your mom and leave me here to pick up the pieces and to take care of everything. And I just, I started this pattern of living that I took for a long time, which was living in this haze of self-righteous indignation about why is it always on me? Why do I always have to be the one to make sure the bills get paid and the cops get talked to and the holes in the walls get patched? And why is it always on me? And if they would just get their act together, my life would be so much better. And I never, it literally never occurred to me that I had any other options. It's not that I thought, oh, I have other options and I'm not going to do them. It never occurred to me that I could find somewhere else to live. It was always about someone else needs to change for my life to get better. And so that's how we went on. Um, we needed to get somebody to replace the normal guy as a roommate. And we met this really old guy who was like 30 and he had lots of money. And uh, so we invited him to move in. And the um, reason he had lots of money is was not only was he you know, probably an alcoholic with those outside issues. He was selling the outside issues. Uh, and he had tons of money, but then things got really insane. Our house was the, the epicenter of every rave after party in 1993 in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now I'm getting up every morning and literally kicking people off my bathroom floor so I can get in the shower and go to work. And I'm just full of rage and anger and resentment all the time. And I don't see any other options because they have to change for my life to get better and they're not changing. No matter what I do, no matter how I phrase it, they're not changing. Uh, I got to be real good friends with uh, one of the other original guys that I moved into and uh, we hung out a lot together and we drank a lot together. I always try to remember that say, look, I was right here with these guys doing most of what they were doing. I think if alcohol had done for me what it did for, for the alcoholics I've met over the years, I'd probably be dead. I was looking for something to fix me. Alcohol didn't do it. I don't have a disease. And the reason I mention that is that there's no room for any kind of self-righteous attitude of, well, if the alcoholics just hadn't drunk, they wouldn't be drunks. I gave it a good shot. <laughs> like you said, Mary, it didn't do it for me. The only thing that ever came close to making me feel comfortable in my skin was finding someone else to obsess about and take care of. That was my thing. So anyway, we got to, I got to be real close with this guy, and he got hooked on the stuff the other guy was selling. And the reason I mention this is because I've never before or since seen a complete personality change overnight. He was a different person the next day, and I had lost my friend. And I was devastated, and I must have read about tough love somewhere, and I sat him down in a very serious 17-year-old conversation. Hey, man, I love you, but, uh, you know, you can't, if you keep doing this stuff, we can't be friends. I remember he just, he looked at me, and he said, okay, see ya. You know, he just, he didn't say, let me think about it. Our friendship means a lot to me. Uh, you know, he said, all right, bye. And I was devastated. How could he do that to me? How could he choose that crowd and that stuff over our friendship that must mean so much to him? It was all, all about how could they do this to me? I'm so grateful to have learned in Al-Anon that almost nothing at all has anything at all to do with me. Almost nothing. But I, you know, it was all about me. And so I, you know, I was devastated by the loss of that friendship. And then I remember my girlfriend was coming to visit for the first time. And we were trying the long distance relationship thing. And I've been looking forward to this for weeks. She's finally going to come visit. And I had my own house. I'm 17 years old. I was proud of my crack house that I lived in. I, was, I, I have my own place and she's going to come visit. And we're going to talk about 
how my job's going, which was miserable, and then how school's going for her. And she walked in the door, and this is just a testament to the type of place I chose to live. She walked in the door, someone handed her a substance. She did what she always did every time, which was to just ingest the substance without really checking to see what it was or anything. And she's off to the races. Now, I told you, I have plans. I always have plans <laughs> for tonight. You know, we're going to sit and talk, and, and her plans for the evening now involve sitting in the corner for the next eight or ten hours looking at her hands. That's what she's going to do tonight, regardless of my plans. And I was devastated. How could she do this to me? This happened all the time, and I was shocked every time the same exact thing happened. This time it'll be different, you know? And I don't know why that, that, that was the final straw, because it was not the first or the hundredth time something exactly like that had happened, but I'd had it. I couldn't do it anymore, and I, I had to end that relationship. In the interest of full disclosure, I have to be honest, and I'm not proud of this, but um, I, I, was, I was scared of her. She, her behavior was erratic. I never knew uh, when she was going to hurt herself or try to hurt someone else. And so like a real man, I waited until she was back in Tennessee, and called her up and broke up with her over the phone. And I'm, like I said, I'm not proud of that, but that's where I was at. And she did what I expected her to do. She, she had her roommates calling me and saying, oh my God, she's hurting herself. You've got to change your mind. And um, I don't know why I was able to say no. I had never said no to anyone about anything. I, if I'm going to get your approval, if I'm going to get a pat on the back, if I'm just going to feel like a good guy, I'm saying yes, no matter how much it hurts me. And for the first time in my life, I was able to say, no, I can't do this anymore. And um, I moved out of that house shortly thereafter, and for the next couple of years, she tried to find me. I was never on the phone book. I moved around a lot. She would call my parents at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they wouldn't give her my number, but they would say she's calling again, and I never called her back. I mentioned all that for a few reasons. I hated her. I mean, really hated her when I came down. I thought she had just destroyed my view of love and relationships and women and everything when I got here. Um, but I found out a few years uh, into recovery that she uh, did end up killing herself at some point in her early 20s. I don't know the details. I think she had a, a child. And I'm so grateful, selfishly, that I had some recovery when I found that out. Because if I had not, I would have done what I always did, which was to somehow make that about me. Uh, what, if, what if I had taken a phone call? What could I have done? And I wouldn't have seen the incredible arrogance and ego in that type of thinking. That's just how I thought. It's all about me. When I found that out, I had worked my steps. I had been freed of that resentment, and I had also been freed from the, the guilt. I was free. I felt sorry for her that she never found recovery. She was not a bad person. She had a horrible disease. They caused her to do some pretty horrible things to me, but I was completely free. So grateful. So grateful for that. But what I found out back at 17, 18 years old when I ended that relationship is all of a sudden all I have to think about again is me, and I can't do that. I cannot sit in a room and think about me, so I had to find somebody else, and it was a matter of a couple of months later that I reached out and grabbed my next volunteer hostage. She needed help. She was 17, still in high school. Her older sister's alcoholism was destroying her family. She needed help, and so we moved in together. She was still in high school. I was 18 by this point, and uh, we spent the next four and a half years together, 18 to 22 and a half. Uh, what I hope were the worst four and a half years of my life and of hers for her sake. It was, it was absolute insanity. Um, we both, I don't know if she's an alcoholic. We both did a lot of drinking. We both did an enormous amount of damage to each other. Um, we had some good times. Um, we got a VW van and lived on the road, traveled all over the country. I 
we spent a lot of time in Boulder and Netherlands, and I was trying real hard to be a hippie, and I found out that people that need Al-Anon make horrible hippies. <laughs> Or at least I did. I was the worst hippie ever. Like really schedule oriented. <laughs> like this is what this is what we're gonna do next, and it's my van. And um, I really tried. I mean, I had a beard down to here and the long hair and the whole look going on. And I know all the people traveling would be like, "What is his problem?" Because they all got it. They understood. But I mean, that seeming ease and comfort of that lifestyle was so so attractive to me, and I just I just couldn't get it. Uh, worst hippie ever, but um, so we had some good times, but mostly it was it was really really horrible for both of us. But I stayed for the same reason I stayed in other relationships and friendships and in jobs. This idea that this is as good as it gets, it's never going to get any better. I don't deserve any better than this. Um, she needs me. I really felt like she couldn't live without me, and that's amazing to me. I mean, how can someone had no self-worth whatsoever and still can think that highly of myself that someone can't live without me. It makes no sense. But mostly it's just the idea that any relationship, no matter how horrible, is better than the abject terror of just being by myself and having only me to think about and what is wrong with me. What is wrong with me? Thinking about that all the time. And so we were going to get married. We were going to move to Boulder and get married. And we were shopping for rings and had the whole plan out. We had ended our lease where we were living. And... Um, what happened was I met the woman that is my wife today. Uh, I had never met anybody like Annie. We were working together um, at my dad's natural food store in Charlotte. When you look like I look, the only job you can get is managing your dad's natural food store. And um, she was working there, and we just fell absolutely head over heels, like the type of love neither of us had ever experienced or really thought possible, that type of romantic love that we just had never experienced before. And um, I'd never met anybody like her. She, she, uh, she was just so beautiful inside and out, and she had a spirituality to her that was very different than the dogma I had grown up with or any other kind of uh, relationship with God I'd ever known about. She just truly believed things like, it's going to work out the way it's supposed to, and I'm going to be okay. And this was so attractive to me. I didn't know she had about four years sobriety uh, at that time in AA. And obviously, I, I love drunks. And this is the first sober one I've ever met. So I was just head over heels. But the awkward thing was I was getting married to this other woman. And Annie knew that. And she always likes me to make it very clear that we did not cheat on my fiance. I need to make that clear because sometimes I forget and I hear about it. <laughs> she wants me to make that clear. Um, Annie wrote me a letter and just said, if you're happy, I want you to be happy. But if you're not happy, this is how I feel, and I want you to know that, that someone else can love you too. And uh, my whole world changed. And I had to make a very difficult decision. And I, uh, I, I decided that no matter what happens with Annie, if I'm even thinking about this, I probably don't need to be moving off to Colorado and getting married. So I had to end that relationship. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do because, like I told you, I really believed she couldn't live without me. And that's embarrassing to say that out loud. Um, she's just fine. She's told me several times. <laughs> um, she has thanked me for ending that abomination of a relationship. Um, but anyway, it was horribly difficult. And it was also difficult because we had a guy staying with us who, who was from Boulder. And we had promised him that when we went to get married, we'd drive him back to Boulder. Well, by golly, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So after I had ended the relationship... 
One morning, the three of us, my ex-fiance and me and this guy, got up and got in our car, and I drove. <laughs> I wouldn't let anybody else drive. I, I was talking about this earlier. If I'm going to do something horrible that I just got to get done, I'm going to do it in the most dangerous, insane way possible just to get it done. That's how I got through school later on. Um, I drove single-handedly. It took almost exactly 24 hours. Um, I wouldn't let anybody, I mean, I was, I was out of my mind by the time I got to Boulder. Dropped her off. Uh, I, don't, I have no idea how long I was in Colorado. I gave her everything we owned because that's how I deal with guilt. You take it all. Everything, take the car, take everything from the house. It's all yours. Got on a Greyhound bus. It's about a 44-hour trip back to Charlotte, which is a lot of fun, living on a bus for 44 hours. And, um, and Annie picked me up. My wife today picked me up from the Greyhound station at like 3.30 in the morning, and we moved in together because that's what I do. And um, we moved in together before we had our first date. And um, that's the truth. That's the truth. Because I had nowhere else to go. I didn't have a house to go back to. Uh, and I don't necessarily recommend that, but we'll be coming, to, coming up on 15, 14 years of marriage in January. So thank, thank God for the programs. But uh, we moved in together, and things were just incredible, just head over heels in love. And, uh, and I started learning about AA and going to open AA meetings with her and, and meeting her sober friends. And like I told you, I love alcoholics, and these are sober alcoholics who are fun and enjoying life and enjoying sobriety. And I, I read the first 164 pages of her book, and thought, this is great stuff, you know, for people that need it. And, and then I heard her give her AA talk and realized, wow, she really needs this because um, that person she's describing is not the woman that I'm in love with. And I loved AA, loved everything about it. Well, we went to visit that normal friend of mine, actually, and his girlfriend in Wilmington, North Carolina, and try to make a long story short here. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to tell too much of her story here, but she's given me permission to tell you that this relationship immediately became my higher power. I put her on a pedestal, and she didn't ask me to do that. This, this validated me in a way that I never thought possible. But it kind of did the same thing for her. And she stopped doing the things that she needs to do on a daily basis to maintain her spiritual condition and her sobriety. And I didn't know this was going on. But we were with these friends, and we're at a restaurant that's also a brewery. And they're, my friends are an alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic. Annie has assured me that she's fine being around alcohol. So they're bringing over little shot glasses of beer to see what kind of pitcher we want to order. And Annie just reaches over and drinks one. Shot glass. I don't know if she even drank the whole thing. Well, she was hoping that we'd say, hey, it's about time. Join in. And then she'd switch over to a real drink because she wasn't a beer drinker. Well, she didn't get that reaction. They knew she was sober. I knew she was sober. We said, hey, what are you doing? And she set it down and kind of played it off and made a joke and said, oh, there was no alcohol in that sip, just joking around. And that was it. It's the most I've ever seen my wife drink. And everything went downhill from there. And this is where the disease of alcoholism, apart from the drinking, comes into play into my life because the drinking is just one symptom this disease has a lot of symptoms that i didn't know anything about so we get back to charlotte and annie's working through the steps in the new sponsor and as she tells it i'm kind of doing a fifth step on the way out the door she said oh by the way a couple of months ago i had a sip of beer and her sponsor says oh well you know you're going to need to change your sobriety date the woman that came home from that meeting with her sponsor was not the woman i fell in love with that's all, the only way I know how to put it. The woman I fell in love with loved AA and loved her sponsor and was so grateful for recovery. This is a different person. 
She was angry and resentful and everything changed. She was saying things like, if I'm going to pick up a white chip, I'm going to earn a white chip. And I believed it and it terrified me. I could not imagine how I was going to keep an eye on her all the time to make sure that that didn't happen. And of course it was my fault. It was my friends. It's all about me. If we hadn't been there and if I hadn't ordered that beer, this, none of this would be happening. So, and I'm just going insane. And I kind of knew how to deal with active alcoholism, drinking alcoholism. I could blame it on the drinking. No, they were drunk. They probably won't do that next time. Why is my wife this completely different person and she's not drinking as far as I know? I didn't know how to handle this. And I was absolutely insane. I was trying to imagine how am I going to, I can't end this relationship. I can't, but I can't live like this. It's kind of jumping off point where I can't imagine life with the alcoholic and I can't imagine life without the alcoholic. How am I going to live the rest of my life walking on eggshells, waiting for the day that I screw up again, and this time she really does get drunk and things get even worse, and it's all I'm thinking about. First thing I, when I wake up, it's in my mind, and last thing before I go to sleep, and it's, uh, it's affecting every aspect of my life. I'm absolutely insane. And so is she, by her own admission. Um, and I was you know, explaining some of this stuff that was going on in my head to a friend of hers in AA who did a very, very loving thing and said, hey, you know about Al-Anon, right? And I probably said something like, yeah, yeah, I know about that Al-Anon. <laughs> my view of Al-Anon, I didn't have a high opinion of Al-Anon. It was formed from the, the uninformed opinions of some members of AA um, who did not understand what Al-Anon is. You know, that, that happens. It's just ignorance. I didn't know what Al-Anon is really about. And I was absolutely positive that I do not need to go to Al-Anon. I'm so grateful for the gift of desperation because I was out of ideas. I could not, and I mean this literally, I could not go on living, thinking and feeling the way I was on a daily basis. I felt like I was literally losing my mind. And I thought I'll give this Al-Anon thing a try just to scratch one more thing off the list of things that isn't going to work for me. And so on a Monday night in June or July of 1999, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. It was a Queen City Monday night Al-Anon family group in Charlotte, North Carolina. I walked in that room. I was 23 years old. I had a beard down to here still, long hair. I looked around that room. It appeared to be 95% women. Uh, the median age appeared to be about 102. Um, that obviously isn't true but that was my perspective you know it's a disease of perception on our part too or on my part um and i looked around the room and i thought there is no way i can have anything in common with anybody in here i do not want to be here just terrified of everyone and everything and i'm so grateful that they welcomed me with open arms they said you're in the right place we're glad you're here nobody ever looked at me and asked if i was looking for another room you know if i was i would have found that other room they said we're glad you're here and I was looking for a reason to not come back. I wanted one excuse to not come back, and nobody would give that to me. And so I kept coming, and I started listening. I was terrified. I couldn't read a step if you handed me the paper. It would shake so hard. I couldn't read off of it, literally. But I started coming back, and, um, you know, Annie and I got married. And then following January, first few years of our marriage were rough. We had some good times, and we had some horrible times, and without any drinking, we went through just about everything I hear people describe in an active alcoholic relationship. And I'm not going to go into details because I'm not here to take her inventory and I'm not here to do a fifth step, but it was rough. Um, and I, by her, you know, her, she describes it as a, a long period of being a dry drunk. 
and I needed to learn about the disease of alcoholism, that it doesn't have anything to do with me. <clears throat> and I also needed to learn, <clears throat> yeah, she was insane, but guess what? So was I. And Alanon told me early on that I could only do something about one side of that equation and that if I wanted to get better, I'd better find a way that I can be happy, joyous, and free no matter what she's doing. And that was an absolute impossibility when I got to Alanon. There was no way my life could get any better unless, obviously, she gets her act together. But I kept coming back, and uh, for after a while, I don't know how long, weeks, I kind of hit a plateau. I wasn't getting any better anymore, and I just kept hearing people. I'm so glad I landed in this you know, a strong meeting of Al-Anon. You know, one of the misconceptions I had about Al-Anon, I really thought that we were going to be sharing and the woman next to me was going to say something like, yeah, my husband got drunk and then he ran over the dog and then he crashed the car into the house and then the house burned down and I passed. And I was going to have to say, yeah, my name's Aaron and my wife took a sip of beer and I'm really freaking out about it. And they were going to say, get out. You know, you don't qualify here. And I'm so grateful that I landed in a meeting with Al-Anon where they weren't talking about the alcoholics. They were talking about themselves, their program of recovery, their defects of character, how they had found a way to be happy, joyous, and free. And they were talking about the steps and that the recovery, you know, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. And that if I wanted to get better, I was going to have to take these steps. And if I was going to take these steps, I was going to have to ask another man to help me. I was going to have to get a sponsor, and I did not want to do that. In my arrogance and fear, reaching out for help is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I help. You know, I'd never ask for help. It's the best thing I've ever done for myself. I finally got up the nerve. This guy was always in the Tuesday meeting at the club. We had absolutely nothing in common, and but I wanted what he had. And one day after the meeting, I reached out and said, hey, will you be my sponsor? And he said two things that I say to guys today when they ask me. He said, are you willing to do everything I do to get what I've gotten from this? And I had no idea what he was talking about, so I said yes. And he said, are you willing to pass it on the way that it's given to you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I want what you have. I'm willing to do what you do and to pass it on. And he said, well, i got to tell you, I'm also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that. Most of our meetings in Charlotte will ask members of other anonymous fellowships to remain anonymous during our meetings so we can keep the focus on Al-Anon. And I'm grateful that he respected that because I had no idea he was in an AA. Uh, you know, my first thought, of course, was there were like 40 people in that room and I can still pick the drunk out of the crowd because <laughs> I just love you people. Um, but the, by, you know, at that point, it would have been really awkward to say, oh, well, never mind. Uh, so, so I said, I, I don't care. And he said, well, I'm going to take, take you through the steps the way I was taken through it. And we got started. And I thought I had taken the first step. I really thought that I accepted that I was powerless over alcohol. I can't keep my wife from drinking. I know that. I can't control anything else she's doing. Why would I think I could prevent her from drinking? But he had me take a deeper look at that. He had me make a list of every single thing in my life that I was powerless over. But even more importantly, he had me write down next to each one of those people and institutions and circumstances exactly how my life becomes unmanageable when I try to control that thing. I needed to see that connection. My life's not unmanageable because I'm powerless over alcohol and alcoholism. If that were true, I'm, I'm out of luck because I'll always be powerless over that. My life's only unmanageable when I'm trying to control something, when I'm not accepting that I'm powerless over that stuff. I live my whole life with this delusion that if, if I love you, I can't be okay unless you're okay. And that's what love is, right? I can't be okay unless you're doing the things I think you ought to be doing and not doing the things I don't think you should be doing. And as someone who loves you, it's my job to help you with that. I mean, I know I'm not God, 
but I clearly see the path God has laid out for you, and you're not on it. And I love you so much that I'm going to help you get back on the path and stay on the path, and you're never grateful for that. And so what I would do is that if you're not applying my solution to your problem, the only reason, literally, that I can imagine for that is that I haven't explained it well enough yet. I can't think of any other reason, because it's so obvious what I'm saying, why what you're doing isn't okay. It's so clear that I must not have found the right words, and so I'll try over and over and over in slightly different words to get this across to you with this delusion that one day you're going to get it. The scales will fall from your eyes and the light will shine down from above and you'll change. You'll, well, first you'll apologize for not getting it earlier. I'm so sorry. It's so obvious and clear what you're saying. That was always a part of this regular fantasy of mine. And then you'll change and then I'll be okay. And that's, that's a manageability. That's the insanity I lived my whole life with. I am powerless over every single thing that's not my behavior. Sometimes I'm powerless over my feelings. You know, that's I can't do anything about that, but I'm never powerless over my actions, over my behavior. That's what I need to take all that energy and, and focus on. Uh, so getting a little better understanding of not only how powerless I am, but specifically how unmanageable my life had become and why, I had a lot better chance of coming to believe that there was a, a power greater than me that could restore me to sanity. I had no problem seeing that I was insane because I had worked that for a thorough first step. My problem with, was with the idea of a higher power doing anything for me. The God, I used to say the God that I grew up with, and that's not true. The God that I heard about, because I know they taught me that God loves me, but that's not what I heard. What I heard about was a God that I'm never going to be good enough for, and that's how I felt all the time around everybody else anyway. And this God that, you know, i got to keep trying to be perfect, but I'm never going to be good enough, and God's never going to do anything for me. And uh, so this idea that there's a higher power that could restore me to sanity was difficult at first. My sponsor pointed out a couple of beautifully basic things. Higher power. It doesn't say God yet. I don't need to read ahead. There's some higher power. There's something out there that, uh, power, I'm sorry, it's power greater than myself. I should, I should say that correctly. Something greater than me out there that could restore me to sanity. Not even would necessarily, just could. I'm not quite arrogant enough to say that whatever power out there is keeping the planet spinning couldn't restore me to sanity. That's the little step I had to take to, to get into this third step where I, I have to think about making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. Now, that's a bit of a leap from a, a higher power, a power greater than me, to a caring God. That took some work. I had to work with my sponsor on that. But look, I've admitted that the way I'm doing it is an utter failure and my life has become completely unmanageable. I've come to believe that there's some power greater than me that has a better way of doing it. Really, the only sane next thing to do is to make this decision, to try something different. And I don't know how to turn my will and my life over, but I know how to make a decision. It's a decision that I make every day, and then I try to live my life like I've made that decision. I'm not always great at it. But if I'm doing that, then every single thing in my life is happening for a reason. You know, it, 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 that's... Uh, the peace and the serenity that come with that are so far beyond anything I ever thought possible. Every single thing, even the tragedies, even the painful stuff, is happening for a reason. And God's got it. God's in charge. 
So having made that decision, my sponsor got me started on an inventory. I'm not going to get into too many details there. My inventory had several parts, but the big one was a resentment list, and I loved that idea of writing down all these people that I hated who had ruined my life. That part was great. I get to write down who they were and what they did to me, and how it affected me was a little tough because I had to look at fear, 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 and all that stuff in the third column. But then comes the real difficult part. I got to turn that page, and I got to set aside everything I just looked at and look at my part. What was my part in every single one of these relationships? Why was I volunteering to be in these relationships, in these situations? And uh, I also need to think about forgiving. And also talks about that where maybe they were doing the best they could like I was. Maybe I need to think about forgiving them, not for their sake, because they don't care. They don't care if I forgive them. But if I want to be free, i got to let go of this stuff. But i got to take a look at my part. And that was hard, because there I got to see my defects of character with my sponsor's help. Because I couldn't see this stuff on my own. In my fifth step, I got to see in black and white exactly what my defects of character are. That, that self-loathing, I thought that was humility. I thought humble people thought they were no good at anything, and that's what, uh, really, I thought that was humility. It's not humility. It's just another form of ego. That taking care of everybody else, that's not selfless. That was everything I did was selfish and self-centered. I was always trying to get something out of that. These are very painful realizations, but without that understanding of what my defects of character are, my life will continue to be unmanageable. It's my defects of character that block me from the sunlight of the spirit. It's my defects of character that make my life unmanageable, not these people and institutions that I've resented my whole life. So with that painful realization, I was definitely more ready than I've ever been before, probably since, to have God remove these defects because that's what's making me so miserable. And so my sponsor sent me home, and I spent a little time in prayer and meditation and looked back over the first five proposals, made sure I'd been as thorough as possible, and that I was really ready to let go of this stuff that we had identified. And I got on my knees, and I humbly asked God to remove these defects. Went to bed, got up in the morning, and really nothing had happened. You know, I, I thought I'd done something wrong. I don't know what I expected to happen, but I called my sponsor and said, nothing really happened. And he said, well, let's look at what it actually says. It says we humbly ask God to remove them. Doesn't say anything about them going anywhere right away. You know, and part of this humbly to me is that, like everything else, it's probably not going to happen on my timeline. It may not be the defect that's making me really uncomfortable that gets removed next. Hopefully, it'll be the defect that's standing in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. And I don't get to ask for specific defects to get removed because I don't ask for my will. I just continue to ask every day that God remove whichever defect is keeping me from being useful today. But that readiness that it talks about in the sixth step, that's a daily part of my life. That's an action step for me. I show my readiness through my action. Um, God has never removed a resentment if I keep doing something that makes me resentful. I can pray and pray and pray, God, please remove this resentment, but if I keep doing something I know is going to make me resentful, it, that's my experience. It's never happened. Uh, God has never removed my guilt and shame if I keep doing something I should feel guilty for. Uh, and God has never removed my, my self-centered fear if I refuse to do things that terrify me, like this. I mean, this is a really good example. I mean, I told you how scared I was of people when I came in. And um, the first time I was asked to speak, I just, you know, I, I was grateful that I was told I needed to say yes. Um, but then the first time I was asked to speak at a larger thing, and they give you months to think about that ahead of time. Every day, repeatedly throughout the day, I would think about the fact that I was going to have to do this and have physical pain from the fear. Just crippling pain and I would say God this is a defect of character this is self-centered fear and it's keeping me from doing your will which is to try to share to the best of my ability 
what you and this program have done for me. Please remove this defect so that I can do your will. And I can tell you, when I got up behind that podium, I was just as terrified as I was when I first said yes. But the next time it was a little easier. I have to take the action first. It's just been my experience. I wish it happened the other way around. I want God to remove the defect, and then I'll do anything God wants me to do, anything at all. It's never happened in that order. I have to take the action despite how I feel, and then by showing my readiness to have that defect removed through my action, by participating with the God of my understanding in its removal, God is able to remove those, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And that's just by my experience. I can't remove the defect. Don't get me wrong. But I have to participate through my actions. Or resentment is the same thing. I'll say, God, I know it's your will that I treat this person with love and respect, but I just can't because I hate him so much. Um, so if you just remove that resentment, then I'll go do your will and, and treat them with love and respect. And the God of my understanding says it doesn't work that way. You go treat that person with the love and respect that they deserve as a child of God. And in doing so, that resentment has always been removed from me. And I'm not always willing. I don't always do it. But that's the way it's always worked. I need to wrap up here. Real quickly, uh, the idea of making amends uh, terrified me. But I had seen the harm. Uh, I'd worked my step with my sponsor and seen that every person uh, uh, that I thought had ruined my life, I had done harm to. Every single one of them. And so with his help... I went out and I made amends to these people, and uh, he was very specific about what I was doing. I wasn't asking for forgiveness because I wasn't asking them for anything. I was acknowledging that what I did was wrong. I was looking for a way to try to fix it if I could, and I was changing. I was amending. I was trying not to be that person anymore. And so I went out and did that, and I was expecting some of that guilt that I still had to be removed, and it was. But even though I'd worked four and five to the best of my ability, I still had a good amount of resentment towards some of these people. What I didn't expect was that in my making amends, that resentment was completely removed from me. And that, that's what really blew my mind, because I always thought for me to forgive you, for my resentment to be removed, you have to apologize to me, right? You have to come beg my forgiveness for that horrible thing, and then maybe I'll magnanimously bestow my forgiveness on you, and then I'll be free. But then, of course, my life's unmanageable, because you're probably not going to do that. What I found is that when I go make amends, it really doesn't matter what your response is. Not only is my guilt removed, my resentment is too. And I didn't understand it until years later when I heard a speaker on a CD. He explained it this way. It's perfect for me. I would rather feel anything but guilt. So if I've done something to you that I feel guilty for, I need that resentment close at hand to justify what I did to you. So I can cover it up real quick so I don't have to feel that guilt. I feel bad about what I did to you. I never would have done that if you hadn't done what you did. You started it. Whatever it is, I need that resentment right there so that I don't have to feel that guilt. When I take care of the guilt and clean up the wreckage of my past, the resentment is gone and I am free. I can go anywhere and do anything today. I don't have, to, I don't have time to get into the details of what I've been able to do with my family involving that church that I couldn't even drive past for years because I was so angry at it. I'm completely free today. It's incredible, incredible freedom. I'm so grateful for. And I never have to carry around that guilt and resentment if I'm continuing to take that personal inventory. i got to admit when I'm wrong. I'm not even necessarily done, done harm. I need to make amends when I've done harm, but what it says there is I, I need to promptly admit it when I'm wrong. That happens a lot more often than me doing harm. I'm wrong a lot, and I need to promptly admit that, but I also need to look at the good stuff. Part of my 10-step every day is to look at the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. I need to look at just something as simple as I handle that a lot better than I would have a year ago. Just something simple I need to acknowledge it every day because if I'm not doing that, it's still possible for me today on a really bad day, and this hasn't happened in a while, but it's possible for me to get way down deep in that hole where I just feel like this isn't working. 
this whole al thing doesn't work. This whole God thing doesn't work. I'm just as crazy and sick as I was when I got here. That's a horrible place to be. And it's really hard to get down there if I'm acknowledging every day that that's not true, that I am getting better. It may not be a great day, but I'm so much better, so much different than I was when I came in. This stuff is working for me. I didn't know how to pray when I got here. I love the simplicity of praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. I don't have to figure out what's best for you so I know what to pray for. I don't have to figure out what I need so I know what to pray for. Beautifully simple. Pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. And I don't know what God's will is most of the time, but it's like it works retroactively. If I'm praying for it, and then I'm doing the footwork in the direction I feel led, then I have to believe I'm doing it. Whether it's clear to me or not, I'm doing it because I'm praying for it and I'm trying to do that footwork. And again, that takes me back to the third step. If I'm doing that, then everything is working out the way it's supposed to, and I'm going to be okay. And that idea that I'm going to be okay no matter what is, it may not sound like much to normal people, but for me, that's, that still amazes me today. I'm going to be okay no matter what. That is pretty much the spiritual awakening that we're promised as the result of these steps. I'm going to read something in a second that sums up the spiritual awakening a lot more eloquently than I ever could. But briefly, I'm running out of time. What my life is like today, um, you know, I try to carry the message to the best of my ability, both within the rooms and without. Um, I, I'm blessed to be an active member of my home group, uh, and I'm blessed to sponsor guys and to, you know, to have the opportunity to, to have every horrible thing I've ever gone through, the most painful, humiliating stuff, become a gift because it allows me to be able to help a guy who's going through that exact same thing in a way that maybe somebody else couldn't help him. Um, and I try to practice these principles. You know, I'm, you know I am a, <laughs> I'm on my best behavior in a meeting. So that means for a few hours a week, I'm a spiritual giant. I'm just way up there, you know. But then I leave the meeting and get into traffic, and that jerk cuts me off. You know, i got to try to practice these principles in all my affairs, not for anybody else's benefit, but for mine. And one thing I heard early on is one of the definitions of practice is to learn through repetition. And I like that definition in that context. I'm learning by repeating these behaviors that I've been shown. I'm never going to get it right. It's never going to be perfect. I'm practicing. And so having been given all this stuff, you know, I, I try to carry the message. I try to practice these principles. And that spiritual awakening, uh, like I said, I'm going to read something in a second. Sometimes I forget to mention Annie did pick up that white chip. She's got, I guess, 14, 15 years now. I love my wife dearly. I admire her program, and I try to stay out of it. I have utmost respect for her AA program, and it's none of my business. Um... But I'm so grateful to be in a relationship with someone for whom their program has to come first as well. And that's just how it works for us. It's got to be God, our programs, and then our marriage. We've tried it in other orders. And again, that's just our experience. But that's how it works for us. Without God and our programs, we don't have anything to give each other or the relationship. And I'm so grateful to be in, be in a relationship that's based on trying to practice these principles. It's marriage. It's tough sometimes. We're not always on the same path. But we're going in the same direction because we're trying to, to, to apply these principles in our life. Um, after many, many years of working that job I hated, I went back to school. What does that have to do with Al-Anon? Everything. I was terrified to go back to school. It never would have happened without this program. I went back to a community college, got a little two-year degree. I have an actual career today. It's all thanks to the God of my understanding that I found in Al-Anon and this program. Um, I don't have time to tell you about the relationship that I have with my mom today. It's beautiful, with my family, with my friends. I'm so grateful for what this program has given me, and I want to just finish this by reading something I heard early on that really does sum up what has happened for me as the result of, of taking these steps with a sponsor and working this program to the best of my ability. Now, 
Some people call these promises. Some people call them the gifts. Some people call them the results. I know there's no such thing as the promises of Al-Anon. I, I do understand that. I do not wish to engage in any controversy, so I'm going to call it page 269 and 270 out of the Al-Anon conference-approved book from Survival to Recovery, first edition. And to me, anything in our literature, and our literature is full of promises, anything in our literature that says, if I do this, this will happen, is a promise. So these are some of the promises that have come true to me, thanks to Al-Anon. And it starts with a big if, like some other promises you may be familiar with. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves, and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear, and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered or degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and will come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. First heard that, now and on, I thought, there's no way. There's no way that stuff can happen for me. The fact that every single one of these promises has sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly come true in my life. It's an incredible, incredible gift for which I'll be forever grateful. Thanks so much for letting me share tonight.